This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Kevin McCauhey. He discusses strategies to keep participants within sport, the challenges academies face in providing appropriate environments for young people to flourish, as well as constraint-led coaching approach. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. So, Kevin, thank you very much for bearing with me there. Obviously, I had a podcast just before, as I mentioned to you, doing a double header today. But um, I know we've caught up a couple of times now. But, yeah, really excited for this conversation. How are things your end? All okay? Yeah, very good. Um, enjoying sporting, coaching life at the moment. Uh, lots of challenges, few new things, few uh, had probably... It wasn't for me, but for the players, like a really dramatic loss on Sunday, which I hadn't really been involved with before. I realised my involvement with basketball is kind of S&C and the performance coaching. I don't come from basketball. I couldn't coach the sport per se, you know. But uh, under-18 National Cup quarterfinal, uh, really amazing game. And we were five or seven points up with a, in the last minute at one point, but it got down to three with, I think, 11 seconds left. And they had an international and a particularly good player. And they worked it to him, as would be expected. And at four seconds, he got the three away, but he got fouled and it went in. So it was a three plus one. So I've never seen the like of it. Like, it was really dramatic stuff. And we were away, so their crowd went bananas. And... It was hard for the lads to take that, you know what I mean? And and it was an interesting thing. Like, it was such a contrast game. And I enjoyed this, the style of make fights kind of stuff. We would, we would, not always, but the teams here tend to be a little bit smaller, right? But all the players now at this age have come through a constraints-led approach to coaching basketball. And uh, some of the coaches there are, are really, really good and they've taken this on. And it's a very, very interesting and positive club. Massive numbers retained. But they just play a different way. You can really see it when they play, particularly the better big teams, you know, who will have their three or four, six or five, six or six guys. Uh, so it was a real contrast of power versus, and I wouldn't say a lack of skill on the opposition. There wasn't. There was a lot of skill, but it was... Uh, yeah, so just watching that, I had, like, basketball can be so dramatic because of the shot clocks, because of the timing. We probably don't get as much of that in the Gaelic sports or soccer and, and stuff like that. So, But, yeah, all good, loads of interesting. And then I'm doing the practice design online course, which is going really well. And I've been really lucky at the people that I got onto the course to help me with it or to present and be part of the different sections. So it's a four-week course. There was an introductory, which I did, and, you know, a little bit theory-based, a little bit framework-based. Um, and then we do children, 5 to 12, youths, and then adults stroke elite. And I've got different people in for the weeks, but the, the children one last week was... It surpassed my expectations, even the people presenting, uh, which was great. So I'm busy and, you know, coaching. And, you know, that's that's what I enjoy. Perfect. So I think that, yeah, really nice overview in terms of loads of fingers in pots, etc. Obviously, I came across you via social media um, and and we had a catch up uh, last week just around our experiences and some things that we probably agree on, some things that we challenge each other on, which I think for me is is why this podcast is going to be really exciting, because I think that actually... I don't see a lot of healthy dialogue about these types of subjects and kind of people going, actually, yeah, I agree with you on that point or I concede you on that point. So I'm really excited for it. For people that maybe don't know you, don't know your background, do you want to kind of give a brief overview of, I guess, who you are, what you currently do? Um, I guess some experiences that have led you towards uh, the way you work and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um Okay, uh, I suppose I am an S&C coach, right? That's my bread and butter. Uh, I work largely with athletes, teams, online and offline. I've been doing this for probably 10 or 12 years now. 
Uh, I did work in other industries, but I've coached. This is my, I'm heading into my 30th year of coaching. Uh, and I would have started off local volunteer, and, and a massive chunk of it was that all the way from local Gaelic football hurling, which is the Gaelic Games of Ireland or GEA, as people might know it. It covers a number of sports, actually. It's often forgot that it's more than hurling and football. There's rounders and handball as well. But um, so hurling and football would have been the traditional local sports that I played. And um, I think the, I'm driven a lot these days by my experiences, like we all are, I suppose, to a large degree. Participation or attention has become a bigger thing. The more educated I became, uh, the more people I spoke to, the more experiences I had in working with other coaches allied to the positive experiences or negative in some cases that I either experienced or observed. Um, I was very lucky with the coaches I have. And in hindsight now, as you get older, looking back, I think that was a large driving force of me even getting involved in coaching. In fact, in one case, uh, one of them who was being brutally honest with me, I think picked up on my interest in sport and, and, and just being involved in general. Um, had told me I was going to be an elite player and in the same line was telling me I was he thought I had capabilities of being a coach. So he was cutting the legs from under me and throwing in a positive at the same time. But he got me involved in coaching quite young. So I was sixteen when I started. And just, you know, helping out under twelves, under thirteen uh, smaller kids at different ages. So that's brought me through three continents. Uh, lived in America, lived in Australia, and obviously Ireland, and just massively varied roles, which I'm very grateful of now, being an assistant coach, to coach, to manager, to S&C, to whatever, you know. Um, and now I've probably expanded in the last couple of years to some coach education stuff, uh, and a private sense generally, and... Uh, performance coaching with teams as well, where I'm just trying to generally improve the performance of, of a group, a club, or a team. Perfect. So, yeah, I think loads of experiences to to draw on and whatnot. And I think that, um, yeah, loads of different cultures and stuff, which will obviously do stuff in a very different way, which will, will be helpful for this. So I think a really nice starting point for us is probably around the, the physical side of... of um, I'm not going to say performance of playing sport because obviously with your SNC background, there's going to be an element of that looking at that, you know, trying to develop young people or trying to develop professionals in terms of their physical performance. But I think from, from speaking to you previously, one thing you're really big on is around this um, bio banding, you know, rate of growth type work and understanding how puberty can affect children along their development pathway so I guess the first question for me around this is um, what drew you to understanding and developing and, and then I guess highlighting the bio band and type work that was going on um, I'll be honest first of all like my my kind of understanding of how bio banding takes place is rudimentary enough okay but I do see some value and possibilities in it so that's where i'm at and i think there is at a very basic level even at club level we can get a bit creative okay so the, i suppose the whole thing is underpinned by always in my entire life seeing kids give up right um true a lack of awareness rather than bad coaching because some of these people were really good people and I survived because I connected with these very same people. So that kind of survivorship bias that I can now put a language to was something I I watched and experienced. But I was just, maybe my family, my dad encouraged it. You know, I had the resilience or the interest or motivation, I suppose, to stick at it. Um, when I was being challenged, because I wasn't a superstar, let's say, you know, and didn't come particularly easy to me all the time. Uh, so I think that's the genesis of it for me. And then in the last 10 years, between 12 years maybe, between Australia and being back home here the last six-ish years, is talking to parents and people contacting me about experiences of kids giving up. So that kind of led me to needing 
and obviously my study and my education and all that kind of stuff as well, to wanting to find out more and then seeking out people who had more information than I had about or were working in areas, you know, Kevin Murray is a friend of mine locally who was that few years ahead of me in his journey, I would say. Um, and he was working with schools and kids and look, looking at retention and participation in his local hurling a football club. Uh, people like Marco Sullivan, who works with IFK Stockholm, uh, talked to them and influenced them. And they were putting, and then learning about some of the theories and you know motivation and all this kind of stuff. And that started putting language and frameworks to what I couldn't articulate or quite understand in the past, let's say, or what. And it, it allowed me to explain to parents, you know, what was going on, which then led me to working with coaches and clubs who actually wanted to do it better. I hope that explains it. Yeah, no, 100%. So I think that for, for people that maybe um, don't understand what, what this looks like and what this means from a practical perspective do you just want to explain to everyone i guess from your experiences or the work that you do what are the challenges faced regarding dropout of players and why from a i guess a physical perspective does this potentially happen because of the way that we've traditionally coached within within those particularly puberty type age groups yeah i think that's a a really good question, actually. And for me, I can give an example of hurling because I know it, I played it, and I coach it, right? And very broadly, there's loads of people doing good work, even within the what I would consider a, a negative framework, right? Is it's over technical too soon? So if we want to look at like movement before skill, even though I've kind of shifted towards movement with skill. As, as an idea that if we can't move fairly well, if, or if we don't even have the biological capacity at five or six to do some, you know, lunges, right? I always give the example in hurling for lunge because the one of the traditional pickups in hurling to pick up the ball off the ground is you literally lunge down. And a lot of kids can't do that or can't do it very stably, say, right? But then we add a stick and a ball and we ask them to do a highly complex move for something that, you know, the movement isn't there and we're adding the, the skill in inverted commas. And that we feel that if we practice, practice, practice just that, right? So that there's that approach, which will be, for someone like me, if I was six now, seven, that would probably be okay because I was motivated to... I, I was drawn in by the, the glory of the local hurling teams. I was going to games with my dad, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I was kind of in that world. So I probably would have stuck at it, right? But we don't just want all the kids that are like that to stay at sport. We want to, ex, you know, allow everybody the opportunity to, I suppose, exhaust the sport so that they go, I just don't like it, you know. And that's fair enough, right? So there's that technical element as well. There's a little bit of harsh and egotistical coaching going on as well. But that's, I think that's a minority, but it, it, can, it can be very negative, right? But most people are genuinely trying to, to support and help. So there's the movement and the physical part. And then I think there's, there's the simple boring part. That if you do that and you stick at that in a repetitive fashion, and you do that for a number of skills, where we got to get this technical stuff right before you play the game. Kids between six and nine, well, really anyone, to be honest, really even adults would tell you this. Like, I just, I just want to play, you know? I just want to play the game. And there are many elements, okay, to participation or attention. Some of it is outside the sporting ring. Some of it is family. Some of it is school, culture, social. And I think that's why I've been attracted to the constraints that approach and because it helps in those theories, it helps explain the constraints of people. That's not just in the coaching room on the day designing a training session or a practice or improving at role picking or improving a heading the ball or whatever, you know. It's understanding that every kid comes in with constraints, socially, culturally, uh, environmentally, and all that side of it as well. But that when we do have it for an hour, 
you know, we want to build a connection to the to the friends. That'll happen probably fairly organically if we allow it, right? If we don't segregate them too much and uh, or line them up too much or drill them too much, let them play and chat and let them be themselves. And an attachment to the club, okay, which can start really young. And and then an attachment to the sport, which probably comes a bit later, in my opinion, right? And we do have various types of research that supports those ideas as well. But I think anybody who's had kids, their own kids for a long time, understands them at these developments. I think intuitively we know this stuff, you know? However, we're still in some cultures, in some sports, and it varies country to country, sport to sport. And it even varies here in Ireland, let's say, if I'm going to use hurling, from club to club and county to county, where some people over here are doing it really, really progressively, and some people aren't. And so I think the over-technical models and it not being fun, maybe because of those over-technical models, are a huge problem. And we didn't really practice sport when I was growing up till nine or ten. And I still question why we've gone back there. Now, we are where we are, and we have to live in the world that we live in and not the world we'd like to live in, right? And we always have to be careful of being overly nostalgic. And it is what it is. And kids are going to sport at five and six now. So I think now what it's about is giving them the best experience possible with supportive help from qualified people like me and you or others, uh, or actually people like us actually doing the work, you know. Perfect. So we'll, we'll come on to, I think, the, like the academy type systems later, because I think that is a really good discussion um, around that. I guess the the question that some people will have around that is they're saying if in order to play the game, we feel like they have to have this basic technical skill to actually be able to do it. And, you know, that might be like you might have a six or seven year old boy or girl watching the World Cup at the moment who says, actually, I want to go and play football because I've seen Brazil do this amazing thing. And the coach that they go to says, okay, in order for you to actually be able to football, uh, play football, you have to be able to pass and receive or the example you use around being able to pick up. How can coaches uh, develop these skills within a constraint-led session rather than it being drill-based? Because you might get a lot of failure by them not being able to do the basic skill, um, which then leads the wider game to breaking down or them having very limited success at that moment in time. So what does that look like from a, I guess, a practical perspective of them developing these skills within a get more game type session? Okay. Uh, do you want to give me an age? Okay, let's go. Let's go nine, nine years old. Okay, and a couple of years playing around with the club are kind of involved. Yeah, with, yeah. yeah. Um, the first question I have, or challenge for me, there is what is a basic skill? For me, immediately we're jumping into a highly technical model there. That this is the only way to do something. Okay, there is definitely optimal ways of doing things. But all the learning research and, and experiment, uh, experiential and anecdotal and every kind of experience I've had shows that if we fail, we will learn better, right? Now, there is a skill to coaching and, and creating an atmosphere and an environment where failing is okay. So if the coach is not going to do that, the methods probably matter less. I won't say they don't matter. But they matter less, okay? So what is basic skill, you know? And that's the first question. If someone comes in and says, I want to do what Neymar did there, like the first thing is, have a go. And then you'll know, right? So have a go, then you'll know. And let the kid have a go at it. And have a go at it again. So we can have our cake and eat it with this stuff, I think, right? So we can do some technical stuff. I would have a gains first approach, right? And that, you know, like, so to look at some of the Belgian stuff where they, they went 1v1, 2v2, they were working off the children's psychology and neurobiology at those ages, 
It's like children at five and six are selfish. So it's like me and the ball. And then I know I'm getting away from the nine-year-old. I, I will jump back to that. But uh, And then it's me and my friend at the ball. And then it's us at the ball at seven, eight, nine. It's not linear like that. But, you know, that's the general thinking. So they went 1v1, 2v2, 3v3s, and then to 5v5s and all that kind of stuff, right? But that's us still thinking about the game as adults. Like, you know, like 5v5, we're going to have a goal here and a goal here. And you're going to play an adult conceived game, right? And look, there's nothing wrong with that because we're talking about our nine-year-old again now. He might want, or she, the feel of the World Cup. So, you know, I know growing up, we used to, it used to annoy me when there wasn't nets, right? Because kids love scoring, right? So there's all these kind of elements that we do have to be aware of. And you might create, you can have a game that dribbles many balls out of, the, out, out, out of an area in a warm-up game as possible. You want to work at dribbling. And you have five guys outside, five guys inside, right? And they're trying to stop each other. And you have 30 seconds on the clock, okay? And, okay, if you have 20 players, you have a lot of players or whatever, you can wait that if you feel you need to. Uh, I mean, we might talk about it later, about bio biological age and all that kind of, but just medium, stronger, weaker guys to some degree. Or you can work that in multiple different ways. Or one, on Tuesday night, you can do it where they're a little bit more separated on levels of strength, and then you can let them explore it against various strengths the next night. But that could be working on dribbling, no pressure, get it out, it's kind of fun, it's kind of games, these guys are trying to stop us. How many balls do you get out in 30 seconds or a minute or whatever you're going to want? Right, so then that's a constraint. They're in an area and they're the task to get it out and you've got opposition guys working against them. For a bit of fun in a practice like that, or in your 5v5 or whatever you want, lads, if anybody does the Neymar thing today in the next 10-minute game, the next goal after that is worth five goals. Right? So we're rewarding. And the coach then has to realize, though, that there's going to be some silly stuff going on. You know, and they're going to... But we're, a we're giving him autonomy to try. They're using the famous player right which is an important element like there's bottom up top down you know we 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 might get into it with the academy stuff like we we want people to explore their talent ability and all that kind of stuff as well if they want if they're asking for that you know there's something in them you know so it isn't easy by the way Mike. like dealing with multi-skilled kids who you know, could have two or more years of a biological age difference. If you're working with the under nines and a guy's born in January who happens to be an early developer versus a guy born in December who happens to be a, a lesser, a slower developer. And let's say there's a village team and you only have 12, 15 kids anyway. And it's not like, not that I agree with this, but it's not an A, B, C, D team. You know, you're going to have to be creative uh, in that environment. So that's a basic, uh, way I would look at, you know, so I would even do this at adult level. So to bring that all the way up, I would use repetitive, repetitive, repetitive practices. You'd have seen these types of practices in, in soccer. I would have taken some of the ideas from soccer where there's a goal, a halfway goal at, at the end line, and you have 4v4s or 4v3s, and you guys coming in at different angles, and you know, that repetitive practice you can work on. What we were doing Gaelic football, for instance, is we would have a plus one at one side, plus two at the other, three v three v three v three, up and down, up and down. Or you might have cones where it's five v three, but two guys got to go wide, right? And just repeat, 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 and they're just getting the ideas of running from angles, from width in, which is a part part of the Gaelic football. Late runs in at angles, uh, playing against a plus one. Then within ninety seconds, you're playing against plus two, and all that kind of stuff. But within a practice like that, right? I might also add weak-sided scores only, okay? Or, so, there's six or eight minutes, or I might do that for two minutes. I might do, we need to punch a point. Or we need, like I was talking to you before we got on, cross-field kick pass before any score, right? So we're playing a, a kind of repetitive practice 
but we can't score till we've done at least one crossfield kick pass. So we're practicing things that we'd like to work on. And then involving the players, like what would you, and this is no different to the Neymar, you know, with the nine-year-old. So the players come up with some, uh, something they want to work on, and you have this repetitive practice. So that's using constraints, right? I'm constraining the final act. And that's very, that's restraining almost, right? Some people would query the, is it over-constraining in a way? But we're giving them opportunities, you know, with a very deliberate approach. And that might create some chats and questioning, right? How does our long ball crossfield kick work? Are we getting guys to the back post? Are we getting support around the big man? Yeah, what's the kicking like? And it's endless. So, and the same concept is there with the nine-year-olds. So I think it's giving them the opportunity to practice stuff in a safe place. If a coach wants to add technical practice as part of the session, probably on the same team, I think maybe there's a place for that, right? Personally, I prefer creating games that emphasize passing or any of the things I spoke about, right? And with those kids then, right, maybe having a coach or using an assistant coach, pulling them out and, and helping. How could you, using questioning cleverly or maybe a technical intervention, right? If they're really struggling, how about trying this, Johnny, right? And, and I think that's where, because we're allowing everybody to explore stuff then. They're self-organizing, right? I know that term throws some people off. Uh, but we're not giving them too much unless they really need it or really ask for it or we feel it's it's inhibiting their development to at a significant stage where, okay, you know, come out there for Johnny. You look at, look at Timmy over there, see what he's doing, right? Do you think you could try that? You know? If they're very shy, if they're introverted, not willing to, so that that's using constraints, uh, and even the language we use, and when we talk to them, we're, we're constraining them. So if we say going back to basic skills, this is the only way because that's what, for basic skills. That's what that means to me. You know, um, we're probably starting to restrict in some fashion. Yeah, I guess that. Um... Uh, the analogy I, I've used and seen before is you can, if you're asking them to get the ball from A to B, rather than going, well, we want you to strike the ball, your lace under here to do this, do that. It's like, actually, can you get the ball from A to B? And yeah. if you look at a golfer's swing, all of them are very different, but they're all very skilled. So actually, it's, can, can you get this golf ball down the middle of that fairway? Have a go, and then we'll assess yeah. what that looks like beyond that. That's task simplification. Yeah. You know, give them a task and see what happens. And then the coach has to observe. You know, where are our weaknesses then? These guys are good at dribbling. These guys just put the ball down the field, you know. Uh, and that's the skill of it. We said there kind of that um, task simplification. You can then, the addition is, okay, before you go from A to B, you now have to combine with two other teammates. So all of a sudden, there is a discussion around who am I going to combine with? Where am I going to combine with on the pitch? And what strategies can I use within the game to get that outcome? Because, again, like across all sports, it's cyclical in terms of people following trends. You know, uh, we, we spoke about this up there before in terms of zigging when other people zag. If everyone's yeah. pressing really high up the pitch and is trying to be aggressive when the ball back there, actually, it might be more sensible to skip two units play off your front man and combine there. Or yeah. once you've done that a couple of times and everyone's then dropped off because they don't want to keep having that happen, now we might combine closer to our own goal. So then you're obviously allowing them to explore what the game like and also get some strategies around that as well. And I think we can connect this back to movement before skill, movement with skill, the six to nine-year-olds if you want, right? Without ever talking about it now, we can introduce them to true over around game. So even their feel and their movement and their creativity to, you know, get around people. Uh, and if we play any of the traditional bulldog or, you know, any of those games are giving the kids some kind of introduction to that. 
we could dip probably at nine or ten. I think kids start getting attached to the sport, okay, a little bit more. Um, we could start doing it with the games, like we've explained there. You know, uh, no man's land in any sport is going to create a need to go over. So you and then we are also working on long kicking practice in soccer, for instance, or you know. So once you go over to no man's land, then you can attack into the other zone or anything like that, you know. Uh, what I call the Ajax game, it's just a game with width, you know, having guys on the width that you have to play to the winger and replace them, and you're giving pass and move, and you're playing with width, and, you know, so, and then overloads and underloads give us the opportunity to go through, generally. If we overload attackers, it's likely, but we won't tell them, it's likely they'll go through, or they might, and very often they won't go through the first time, but once they start figuring out after a couple of runs of the game or whatever, and then you're up to 9, 10, 11, 12, and you have helped develop a tactically aware child or youth um, without ever talking about 4, 4, 3 or, you know, uh, anything like that. Do you know what I mean? So if we move this on to, obviously, when we were discussing around people kind of dropping out around different ages and stuff and how that I guess affects when you do begin to get to those 13 14 15 age groups you end up with people that look like us that have got full-grown beards and fully developed compared to little Timmy who's still currently in the body of a, of a 10 year old um from your experience how challenging is it to manage that dynamic and what I guess stop gaps can you put in place to try and support that those age groups to retain people within their pathway? It's absolutely phenomenally challenging, I think, for people who work with 12, 13, 14, 15 range. Just in, in Ireland anyway, just into secondary school, a whole lot of new stuff happening. So there's a psychosocial part of it that we can't forget, right? Um the challenges, I don't think NGBs, it's adult ideas imposed on children or youth, right? And what I mean by that is competition structures. That's a major problem for me. So we are obsessed with championship and Gaelic games in Ireland. And, and that's fine at adult level in particular, or maybe some of the older youths, let's say 17s, 18s, 19s, whatever. Um, where, again, naturally, psychologically, biologically, people start becoming more competitive, they start becoming more embedded in their groups, you know, and it starts to mean more, and they and they want to win things at 17, 18, 19, and I've often noticed that losing at those ages, teams that lose at those ages tend to keep more players at adult, which is an interesting phenomenon. I don't have any data to back that, but it's an anecdotal experience. Whereas teams that win at 13 and 14 have very poor retention. And I did do some case study work on that in the past, right? So, but with those ages, I think we need to forget about adult structures. Now, that's not going to happen tomorrow. And we still obsess with the championship. And even really well-meaning people, coaches, friends of mine, people I have great time for, get draw, dragged into this with under 13, under 14, under 15 teams. Like championship. Right? So we have to have our best team for championship. Okay, so if championship was a standalone competition, and, our, and that basically championship is, it's a bit like a World Cup, the way it is in Gaelic games. You play a few group games, and there'll be quarterfinal, semifinal, final. Okay? And the league is very secondary. Right? But to have your best team ready for championship, you need to practice with your best team in the league. So then, we're automatically leaving guys on the bench till 10 minutes to go. So there is that problem, right? And I understand the conundrum, you know, we want to do well for the people who are, because at that age, some kids will be very into winning and competitive and all that. So I think teams and clubs need to be brave. That's the first thing. And they need information and knowledge and support, right? And that long term, well, what is what is the character of your club and what are your principles? 
right? Do you want to keep them to the 1920? Or is it just survivorship bias and we love the best players for the senior team? Because some clubs have said that straight out to me, right? I don't agree with that, right? Morally, I think it's suspect, but so be it, you know? Um, so I think you want to introduce different levels of kids to different environments and different challenges. So I would re be trying and hoping to rethink the competition structures completely and look at least maybe up to under 15 and below at more festival approaches, weekend, jamboree type games, and that we can, we can still have the championship. Okay? And we can still have even regional rep teams at 14 or 15 to a certain degree. Just an introduction. You bring in five, six, eight players from each club and yeah, you can play South versus West versus East or whatever. And th that they're just being exposed to that. So the better players over a weekend because what we don't realize is we don't need to have them together all the time. We're not forming teams like adults, professional or even high level amateur or whatever the case may be. Teams where they need to be together, build a bond and all that. You want to see how people work in an environment. So the better players, yeah, there's no problem with giving them challenge and mixing them up. I've had this idea with the last couple of years where, so in Ireland, again, I'm going back to Gaelic games, we have places in the country with, you know, somewhere between three and eight kids on the age every year. So the under 14 team will be made up of 12, 13 and 14 year olds. Okay. So obviously they're going to struggle to challenge the city teams, who might have two teams largely made up of 14 years. Okay? And that's just demographics. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. Um, but couldn't we have a tournament where you introduce these country teams and we get the city teams to commit to picking four nine-a-side teams and putting their 12 best players on each team? As in, like, their three pick three for each team and having four teams. And the country team might have two teams, if they're lucky, or they might only have one team. But they go into a tournament with all these teams and they play some of these big names, right? For them, their development, they're still kind of playing at a level where the watered down, for want of a better description now, of the stronger clubs. The stronger clubs are getting all their players playing um, with each other. And being challenged. So those very strong A players who happen to be with a team that have a few middling players for want of a better description, let's say develop less developed players or players who are developing slower, which is very common, right? They get the opportunity to lead them. They get the opportunity to work with these players, to work on their empathy, to you know, because at the A grade they're probably playing with ten or twelve exceptional players who make their life a little bit easier. So we can challenge them by supporting them at their club where they're actually really pushed and constrained by the team they're playing with, right? And the benefits are endless in this. And then, yes, let's bring them and have a competition at the end of the year where all the A teams play each other and all the B teams play each other. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. It's just that we have got too far into grading and having adult-type competitions. So I think NGBs, people in clubs, need to get creative, right, um, in how we structure competitions. Because if we're the adults. We have the information, okay? We realize, like, we can't be... I often hear, should the kids love it? Or I asked my young fella, and he said he loves it. I mean, it's N equals 1 for, for a start. But it's like, you know, they're going to tell you what they need they feel you need to hear, or we're the adults, and create competition. And very, very quickly, I think, and I don't have all the answers, I don't know how these things would work out, per se, but you do need to try things. So I think that's the big problem, is that we're not giving everybody enough opportunities to work at different levels. So I guess the challenge back will be for, for some individuals is when you look at that top end or you're looking at players at you know 17 18 19 that then might start making the jump to senior ranks and playing in in, in men's games or playing in some sports professionally 
if they only get exposed to real competitive fixtures at those older age groups, they haven't necessarily learnt the skills of winning, losing, or, you know, the skills of meaningful competition and how I prepare myself for it um, and not getting over anxious or not getting over aroused or under aroused, all that type of stuff. Yeah. It is potentially too late because they're already in that environment. What, how do you think you manage that in terms of still allowing individuals to have that preparation for when they maybe do go into those environments? Well, I, I still think like you, you can have competitions that are uh, and representative, say at under 16, under 17, that are designated to being, for want of a better description, the elite competition. You know, once you start selecting guys, they know it's better. You know, so they, and I think as well, you see, you get over that hump of a few things. It's just delaying it a little bit, Michael, I think, actually. That's, you know, I, I agree with what you're, I, it's a very good point, right? I would suggest it's a little bit more relevant to the professional world, to be fair, right? And I don't have enough experience in your world to really comment on how those guys are prepared, you know. Um, my my initial reaction is that's not a strong enough challenge, right? But I'm not against, I think it's a consideration. And I don't think we should uh, not have competition. Uh, and at, at 16, I've always said post-puberty. That's obviously a broad spectrum, right? But... You know, we can have some representative stuff. And like like anything, I, I'm around kids, you are as well, youths, teenagers, like just listen to the way they talk. They know everything about everything. And if we change, and they know about, the, like talking about the guys Saturday or Sunday in that game we lost, like they knew about the number eight, the, the point guard. Like he was the man to stop. If he does this, he won't do this. You know what I mean? Like, and he's not even in the same city as us. So, you know, so. They understand the structures. They understand the teams coming through. They understand selection. So I think you can still have that stuff. We just don't have to make it a whole season where we take away 11, 12, 13 from their mates, for instance. Yeah. But I, I don't think we, can, we have to stop putting them into challenging environments. It's just how we do it and for how long. And being structured how, with it, being mindful yeah. that actually you know, don't have it where they're in an environment that isn't best for them um, because they're playing in their own age group where actually biologically being up might be more beneficial to them, for example. And that that is often it. Like, have a kind of a bandwidth where we can introduce players to, and, you know, you're long enough involved that I might think a 14-year-old is ready to play under 16. And he goes there and I'm like, Jesus, I got that wrong. You know? And the other guys who are smaller, maybe less developed, finds a little space in the team uh, because maybe the team was missing it. And there's no black and white rules. We do have to... And I, like, this takes a lot of communication. It takes a lot of work from the NGBs to help clubs do this because like, we're talking 98% farmers, accountants, teachers are the coaches, you know. So we can't expect them to sit down and learn about the neurobiology of a 15-year-old, you know, or the psychosocial development of an urban town, versus, you know. Like, so we, they need support in this. But I, I do think, in a very broad one-liner, it's the adult, adultification of children and youth sport is where we went wrong. And we kept going down and down and creating competitions. Now, we are reversing that. And this is what often happens. We go too far one way and we find ourselves back in the middle. But it's just that we learn the lessons along the way to uh, to give the children the opportunity. And it is top down, bottom up. Like, we do want the kids who really want to be the best, who really want to make the rep teams, whether they're good enough or not, we have to be able to give them the opportunity to do that as well. It's an important part of sport. There's no Neymar without that. You know, there's, so, you know, that's like, but I just think 
kids figure out the selective processes, you create a new competition, and you tell them this is the best competition that there is, or this is a representative competition, this is a competition. They know what it is. You know, it'll sort itself out over a couple of years. And so, so you've mentioned a couple of times there, I guess, around the selection, deselection body of work. And I think this ties quite nicely into kind of academies, which I think ultimately global wide in, in some capacity, there's a, seems to be academy there. I know I saw on a, a site the other day that Juventus Academy that was based out of Kent. I'm thinking that's a hell of a hell of a um, trip to to Turin from uh, from Kent, but yeah, I guess from your experiences within that space and from uh, understanding, you mentioned the kind of psychological social element of this, which I think is quite big. What would gold standard academy format potentially look like, in your opinion, if at all? For me, introduction to under at under fifteen. So that, like, that's a big bridge maybe for some people because there's academies out there. We know, and like, this will always be thrown at me. Like, I could be wrong now, but like, Bayern Munich or Ajax are doing this, uh, or you know, and I'm like, that doesn't necessarily make it right, and and they may be doing it for other reasons, and they may not even want to do it, like. That's what I've heard from people who've worked in academies, funnily enough. We know some of this stuff could be done a little bit better, but here we are, and we're trying to do the best with what we have, which I think is absolutely legitimate. Um, but I, for me, my experiences started introducing representative work at under 15. So that's going to involve 14-year-olds. And my experience is that of good players that were sent into squads that I was involved in, about half of them were psychologically ready for it. Okay? So I think we're on that cusp then. And that's, look, as a coach then, I saw, I kind of, I was saying this to one of the other guys, and he was like, well, maybe it's our job to help that other half bridge the gap. And I said, fair enough. You know, that's that's a, a good way of looking at it. You know, that's a challenge for us then. So somewhere around, now, my experience isn't as, as probably as extensive as yours in that academy kind of structure. but. So I, I, that's what the first starting point, okay? And you have a better chance of being, players are more ready at that age, although not exclusively ready, to be rejected. So if we're going to think about the individual, right, at those ages, they're a little bit more, they've been in school, secondary school, there's a little bit more of winning and losing in life. Right, they've started to cognitively process some of that stuff, and their parents will have a handle on them and know what to say to them. And you know what I mean? All that kind of stuff matters, right? And physically, a few fellas have got their growth spurts. Girls, obviously, is well, girls probably a little bit earlier, um, and they're figuring themselves out just that little bit more. It's never going to be perfect, okay? So I think that's the first starting point, and we all know. That does lots of stuff before that. That is deselecting, even by accident, right? And I don't have any data on this, right? But anecdotally, I have spoken to people involved in academies over the years, and some of them do follow-up work. And I know there's loads of clubs really trying really hard to make sure that if someone is deselected, that they continue in the sport. But some of them would report that up to fifty percent stop playing sport, right? At all on a 12-month follow-up. So there's something in that, okay? And I think we know that anyway, but that might be for many reasons, and we may not keep all those kids in sport anyway. There is a possibility those kids, if they just were in a regular club system, would have deselected themselves over time anyway, right? Uh, we don't know. But So that's the starting point for me. Then I think it's just traveling and an excessive travel is a drain on families and people and the kids themselves. So organizations, if you're on an under-15 National League team or Premier League squad or whatever you know uh, the sport might be, reducing the travel or, again, having tournaments, if there has to be travel, that we bring them away for a week in the summer to London, let's say, and all the 
Category 1 clubs and Category 2 clubs play, you know, tournaments, and, and they're getting that exposure. See, my feeling is we don't need to expose them to these high levels as much as we think at those ages. Like, if we go to a tournament with a Southampton or Chelsea under-15 team, let's say, for argument's sake, and they get exposed to playing against Barcelona or whoever, right? That's so much information for the coaches and the players. You know, look, this is the level, right? We we don't know, and I say this to teams I work with on a, on a coaching level. Like, are we good enough to win this year? We don't know, but the worst thing that can happen is we find out what we need to do, right? So, and again, it goes back to I do believe in exposing kids or people within reason. There's no point in putting a D, D grade player with a representative team, you know what I mean, or someone out of their depth. But within reason, exposing them to the big city clubs, the international teams, or the, you know, and all the levels up. Um, and the kid realizes, and the coach realizes, okay, we have a ways to go. Or, we're on the right path, maybe. You know what I mean? And so I don't think we need as much of the constant full season leagues and things like that as, as as maybe it's gone. Okay? I don't know what the mechanism is like to say have kids play locally and representative. I think that varies a little bit. Gaelic Games doesn't have that problem, to be honest. Because um you have to play with your club or you're not allowed to play with the company. You know, it's just like that's just the way it is. Um and the club is kind of the constant. As a, so it's a slightly different system. So, you know, my experiences there are slightly different uh, to say the professional soccer world. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess from from a soccer perspective, you're allowed to play counties in terms of school and you're allowed to play district if your club lets you and some clubs don't. I've known of some clubs that go absolutely not. You're not allowed to do that. I'm fortunate the, the club... Can, can, can I ask you there, Michael, right? Because I've... There's some relative experiences here that I'm going through at the moment, right? And it's more about not being not allowing them to play other sports, okay, as opposed to playing, right? But um, why do you think a club would do that? Is it the fear of injury? Is it control? Is it insurance? Or it's what is it? Two, two bits, I think, partly because of injury. And partly because of the the being afraid of missing out. So not being at this session continuously means you fall behind in this aspect or something like that. Now, I'll be honest, I'm really fortunate. The club that I work with in Southampton, we actively encourage that, particularly at the younger age groups. It's just kind of, you've got a school tournament or school game, go and play. Like it's important yeah. to play with your friends. If you've got a tag rugby tournament, absolutely go and do it. And if you can, send the coaches a picture of you with your friend with a thumbs up or whatever. Yeah. Because we we understand the importance of them not wearing our badge 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah, yeah. But that I'll be honest, that isn't always common practice. And I'm fully aware of yeah. some clubs are a site, absolutely not. Once you're registered, that can't happen. Well, it's important that it is happening. Anywhere, even in one place, and I'm sure there's more places than Southampton. I know there is actually, yeah, places with similar attitude, you know. And I suppose it is that brick by brick approach, Michael, that people like me and you talking, and all the people that inspire us or we work with, or you know, sharing that kind of stuff. From the thing that jumps out to me, there is a misunderstanding of learning the idea that, and I was guilty of this. In Myself in the past, you know, we were all inexperienced, and I'm still inexperienced. And if I'm doing the same stuff next year as I'm doing this year, 100%, then I'm not going anywhere. But um, that one training session could be vital to learning. I was nuts. I was going to say that's nuts, but like I have new information over the last number of years. I've searched out learning, how we learn, modal learning, really, really extensively, and I'm still on that journey, you know, how humans learn. It's so fragmented, non-linear, all over the shop, influenced by the car ride home, the other sports we play, the school we go to, the culture, the, what the teachers are, what our parents are like, 
you know, and it's never going to be that one session. Uh, and I think that's possibly on coach education, which is what's well, the Wild West in ways. Yeah, and I think listen, I think it's it's twofold. Right? I'm, not, I'm not talking about soccer there per se, or or the English FA because or anyone, but it's just that it's all over the place. Yeah, all no, over. I, I agree with you that, and I think that listen, it's probably a little bit egotistical in terms of coaching point of view to think that actually the one session I'm going to do is going to make all that difference <laughs> because it probably isn't. Um, yeah. But I also think the other side, and this is probably where it it aligns for me personally, is. A really nice quote that I had was people remember how you make them feel, not what you said. So actually, yeah. if we're talking about creating holistic individuals or helping create holistic individuals or we're helping trying to reach the person before the player, all these strap lines that everyone has. Actually, if I keep saying no to everything, what's that overriding feeling that they're going to have? Yeah. Whereas if I say to them, yeah, and tell me about it. Or that's amazing that you've done that. Could you, could you, when you get back, could you write me just half a page on how that made you feel doing that event? Or if you've got video, come and share it with all the coaches. We'd love to see it. How do you think that young person feels about you, about your interaction, so that then when maybe I do come to try and help them on the coaching side, where does that change what does that look like by having those yeah. now some people will turn around and say it makes absolutely no difference you're in a, a, a powerful position they'll listen to you they'll do as you say they'll improve I'm more of the standing that I think actually having that human connection helps them develop and helps a boy develop so yeah for me I think there's that emphasis around multi-exposure not only helps them in terms of different environments, different kids, different coaches, different learnings, but also strengthens your bond with them as a person yeah. as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, people respond so well to you encouraging them to explore whatever. And I mean, you can have hard and fast rules or like I would say to people, you know, where we have some conflict overload of parts of the season or... Uh, a crossover, whatever, that's fine. But look, let's say Gaelic football, 1st of May onwards, we're going to need a commitment. But I'm okay with everything else before that. Certainly at adult or competitive levels, maybe, you do need to have those, you know, even from a loading point of view, like um, those kind of chats. But yeah, it's it's a constant challenge. Uh, people don't seem to see the benefits of it. Look, ultimately, that the idea that coaches have the information, we are the teachers and we're going to give you the information and also a little bit of a control thing happens a lot and they feel the need to control and if I'm not in control, uh, I don't know what's happening, right? And like I had a scenario here uh, last season where a group of coaches from a representative team in Gaelic football came to watch basketball because they'd seen and heard so much about the local club and what they were doing and the good coaching and blah 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 there was a couple of players who actually overlapped right so he played basketball and he was playing representative football and they went away whatever they got out of it but then they stopped him playing basketball <laughs> it was just incredible this and a long way out from competition so they they saw the value of the basketball practice or enough to go and turn up and watch it and then with a very short space of time they told him he couldn't play basketball anymore if he wanted to stay on the team you know so uh like and it's you know i i do and, and, and then a lot of people do hide behind the moniker of oh, oh we're afraid of the load you know um i don't believe that's the case a lot of the time to be honest um but, you know, it is it is heartening to hear that there is that approach within academies. But then I've always known, and everybody knows, there's loads and loads and loads of good people working in these places with very highly qualified, loads of experience, with a very developmental and connection-based approach to coaching. And if you connect with people, 
they are going to enjoy it more. If they're going to enjoy it more, they're going to be motivated intrinsically more. If they're more intrinsically motivated, they're probably going to work on their weaknesses. That you're always thinking about, geez, I'd love if he worked on that. You know, uh, or at least it makes those conversations a hundred times easier. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think that um, one really nice video, and we we actually showed it to the parents of, uh, at Southampton this year, was Jamie Carragher spoke on a podcast around his son being in an academy, um, and he basically said, "I never once think my son will play in Liverpool's first team. That's where he's at. He's at Liverpool." He said, "But I liken it to them being." a private school with some really good practitioners that can take care of him and support him. He'll get some amazing experiences of going away places and, and, and whatnot. He said, and I hope that um, that will, you know, provide him some really good memories. He goes, I'm not worried about the end goal. And I, the kind of bit that resonated for me is that actually, if you had that approach within these elite settings which is you know what let's just focus on you're going to get some really insightful coaching if it's monitored properly and from our end you're going to get some really good experiences with and you're going to make some new friends let's not worry about the deselection selection top end let's yeah. not worry about the end goal let's just focus on this little bit now that would potentially from a psychological point of view put the boys and parents and everyone in a much different headspace so then if you go you know what if you carry on in this rate you're going to be the next harry kane which is yeah yeah very very unlikely i do, i do think there's a little bit there that i don't know uh it probably happens naturally enough again again but in soccer i've noticed it happened since they started the under 13 national leagues here i'm talking to parents really um who are involved is when they are deselected, they're too far away from their home club. And what I mean by that is so psychosocially. So, and then they have to go back. And there was a kid coming to me here doing SC last season, and he'd, he'd been on international squads. So he was a high level goalkeeper. And, but he got let go by Cork City, but he hadn't played with his local team for two years. Mm -hmm. And I could sense, he didn't say this, but I could sense that was a challenge for him. And I found out afterwards, which is another challenge and maybe another conversation. Within one game, he was the goalkeeper for that team, right? So, okay, maybe talent-wise, that was an obvious thing. But what about the guy who played for the last two years? Yeah. You know, so there's a conflict there, and I wonder, I don't have the answers to that. So they're big questions as well, like, how do you keep a connect? How do you keep people playing, I suppose, after they give up, or sorry, after deselection? But I, there's absolutely no doubting that that approach. I think there's a good video out there as well for Richard Dunn, or maybe he spoke on Off the Ball or something, uh, similar to Carragher's, but it's a really good, inspiring uh, discussion, because I think his son is somewhere i don't know is it england or ireland but he's in he's in some academy um and that attitude that like you know we're gonna have a good experience who knows what's gonna happen would be really refreshing if it was if it became the norm so. yeah and i think that's a big if so last question for me um which is if i were to ask the people you work with or the players that you, you coach, how would you like them to describe you as a practitioner? How would you like... Um, that I give everybody a chance. That would be a big thing. That I follow through on what I say, which can be a challenge sometimes, particularly with competitive adult teams and stuff, like if we're going to have these standards and, you know, uh, someone's not training enough, we're not going to play them. You know, that that's something we have to follow through on sometimes. Uh, or we are actually going to select based on training or things like that. So I think following through on what I say is a big thing for me. And if I don't do it in any way, I, it, it kind of affects me. Do you know, I, I, you know, that's something I keep an eye on. Um, so that, that I care and that I follow through on what I say I'm going to do. 
I find coaching now that I'm a bit more experienced is very much give and take. And I suppose I've got to a place where, you know, like I respond to effort from the players now. And last year was a significant one where, you know, the the culture there was very positive in terms of effort and, uh, before I ever got there, you know. So it made me work hard. And I suppose that might be the third part that he works hard for. You know, um, so you care, you work hard, and you follow through on what you're going to say. Or sorry, you follow through on what you say. Um, they'd probably be the things. Perfect. Listen, Kevin, I think a really good conversation in terms of, you know, considerations of, you know, when people are in these pathways or when you're working with young young people and young yeah. players and stuff. Actually, what effect are you having on them? And how can you give them the best experiences and have longevity within whatever sport or hopefully a variety of sports? Um, so, yeah, really good conversation. Really appreciate your time and hopefully we can do it again soon. I really appreciate being asked on, Michael, and it was very enjoyable. Thanks very much. No worries at all. Catch up again soon. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.